On June 25, 1981, Eugene Lang returned to the elementary school that he had attended 53 years earlier. Well, Lang was now a successful businessman worth millions, but the neighborhood he'd grown up in had changed drastically. East Harlem's children were poor, and the dropout rate for the community schools was among the highest in the nation. Lang was in the middle of delivering a standard graduation day speech to soon-to-be middle schoolers and some of their parents. He droned on about working hard, about studying, going to college, but he noticed that hardly anybody was paying attention. That's when he changed his speech. This is your first graduation, the perfect time to dream, he said. Dream of what you want to be, the kind of life you wish to build, and believe in that dream and be prepared to work for it. But you must study, he continued. You must learn. You must attend junior high school, high school, and then college. Well, the words sounded hollow. No one really believing that these kids in East Harlem could succeed. The statistics, the history, everything argued against his speech. But he continued, stay in school and I'll... And his voice caught. And he paused. And then, as if suddenly inspired, he blurted out, I'll give each of you a college scholarship. (laughs) Well, after a second of silence, a a wave of, of emotional cheering and applause and excited conversation rolled over the room. It was the start of an amazing movement where more than 12,000 sixth graders went on to attend college with the help of more than 200 additional generous sponsors. In the first year of Lang's promise, he did more, though, than just guarantee the money for 61 fidgety sixth graders. He helped school administrators prepare these students for success and for college. He hired tutors. He did whatever he could to give them the best chance at succeeding. And those sixth graders and their families learned that Eugene Lang was for them. It makes a difference, right? It makes a difference. If, if we know that someone is actually for us, well, get ready for some great news this morning, because uh, that's the, the message this morning. Essentially, God is for us. Now, why is this so important? Why does the Apostle Paul invest so much time and energy and ink in writing uh, this letter? About this. In fact, we're more than eight chapters in to a 16 chapter book or letter that was addressed primarily to Christians. You remember back in chapter one, Paul identified his audience as those loved by God and those called to be saints. In other words, those called to be set apart for his purposes. He's writing primarily to Christians. He's writing to people, most of whom have not met him yet. He's not been to Rome yet. And so he's communicating every which way he can um, about these truths that we've been learning about these last many, many weeks and months as we've kind of plowed our way through the book of Romans. So we're, we're a little more than halfway through. Yet, I believe, we still scuffle 
with this relationship. We either don't fully grasp what God has offered us and is offering us, or maybe we're just too influenced by our own experiences. Maybe we're just too influenced by our own circumstances that we see around us. Have you ever heard this from someone, or uh, have you thought this yourself? Quote, For a long time in my Christian experience, I somehow had the idea that God was against me. Now, interestingly, as I was preparing for this message, I came across that quote. It doesn't sound very fantastic until, I re- until you read further, but what's interesting is that that's a quote from, I won't name the person, but it's a person that many of you would know, a very well-known pastor in America with huge influence all over the country and all over the world. For a long time in my Christian experience, I somehow had the idea that God was against me. Wow. He went on to say six things about that. That God was just waiting for me to make a mistake so that he could teach me a lesson by bringing judgment upon me. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of the, the view of, of the divine uh, ruler in the sky that's going to come whacking down on your, on your knuckles, right? Every time you step out of line. Two, that every bad thing that happened to me, I blamed on God. I figured that he was punishing me for something. Three, I thought that somehow I had to earn God's favor or approval. Somehow I had to persuade him to love me. I thought that his love was something that I had to deserve. Basically, this gentleman goes on to say, I thought that God loved good boys and hated bad boys. This is a well-known pastor talking. In his own scuffling with this relationship with God. And then finally, kind of humorously, he says, You know that song about Santa Claus making a list? uh, Checking it twice? Trying to find out who's naughty and nice. That was, that sort of described my view of God. Wow. I think we can all identify with that, right? That's not just some pastor musing about his, his, uh, personal struggles with his relationship with God. I think we can all relate to that. So this morning's message, uh, is going to focus on two verses that Debbie just read. Verses 31 and 32 of Romans chapter 8. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles. Turn on your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible right in front of you, if you didn't come with a Bible, please use a pew Bible. It's on page 1119. (laughs) On page 1119. These two verses come on the heels of verses 28 and 30, which for the last couple weeks we've heard two very powerful <clears throat> messages about, about what God is providing for us. Uh, those, those three verses, 28, 29, and 30, list exciting promises, wonderful blessings which God provides for those who choose to follow Him. Um, and then it even ends there in verse 30 with a statement of uh, glorification or glorified. It, it, it ends with a glorious finish. In fact, the glory that Paul references is... Is so, he's so certain about that, Paul is, that he writes it as if it's already taken place. The two verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 31 and, and, and 32, are, um, they're also, they begin a series of 
questions. I think there are seven of them. Uh, different scholars uh, number that differently, but I found seven. In fact, if you, if you look in your Bible, starting at verse 31, you'll see question marks. I've actually circled them in my Bible, and I have seven circles here from verse 31 through verse 35. There are, there are questions, rhetorical questions that Paul is asking. He's beginning to summarize what it is he's been, uh, he's been arguing for in, the, in this chapter, and he's also starting to wrap up this chapter. Well, Three of those questions appear in the two verses we're going to look at this morning. And in fact, they'll kind of serve as a sort of a loose outline and help us kind of walk our way through these two verses. This first question is Paul's, so now what? If you've been around here long enough, you know that I like to ask that question. So what? Now what? So now what? And that's essentially, I think, what Paul is saying here. And in doing so, he's... He's forcing us to respond to these wonderful things that we have just been hearing. What then shall we say to these things is the first question. Paul uses this phrase, shall we say, he uses it seven different times in the letter to the Romans. And he he does it specifically because he wants to draw in his audience into the argument that he's, he's giving them. He wants to make sure that they get it. Again, he's writing to people who don't know him. And so he's trying to anticipate what they might be thinking, and he, he's trying to pull them in to his argument, to pull them into his discussion, to, to fully grasp and understand what he's been saying. What do you suppose Paul means by the statement, these things? What then shall we say to these things? At least the previous few verses. He's at least talking about this, this glorious description, part of which Debbie just read. I mean, just look at verse 30 alone. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's full of theological terminology, but it's rich. It's just full of great truths about what God has done and is doing for us. So he's at least referencing that, but I think he's referencing even way more than that. I think he's going back possibly to chapter 5 and what he's, what he's been talking about in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. Or many would say, no, he's going all the way back to chapter 1, starting in verse 16, where he introduces the gospel and says, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he begins to unpack and describe what the gospel is, what the good news is, the good news about God's love for us through Jesus and those of us who choose to follow Jesus. You remember that tagline? Well, maybe I don't. Maybe you don't have those stores here. Uh, there were convenience stores down in Southern California, and they, they used a tagline, there's just too much good stuff. It's like, it's like there's just too much good stuff here. And, and Paul is beside himself, and so he repeatedly asks this question, what are we going to say about this? As uh, Pastor Scott, who's in Wilsonville this morning, preaching on this same text, and he, as he and I talked about and bantered back and forth about this text this week, he said, man, I, I, I wish I had kind of grown up in the African-American church because this is one of those passages where you could just really draw this, this thing out. And he is oh so right. I've had the privilege of preaching in many black churches in the Deep South, specifically Mississippi, and, 
you know, a, a little 35-minute message that might be preached here at New Life ends up being about an hour and 15 there because the audience is a little more engaging than what you are here this morning. So that's okay. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Thank you. All right. A little bit of an inside joke there, but thank you. But uh, Scott was saying, yeah, I think I'm going to try to do that. I think, I think I'm going to, I want to talk about some of the specific things and kind of, kind of review God's grace from chapter 1 all the way through and basically stop after each one of those and say, what are you going to say about that? Because that's essentially what Paul is saying here. Where, how are you going to respond to that? What are you going to say about that? Well, let's look at five. There's, there's five really rich things that are stated just in this chapter. So if your Bible's already open... You can look at them very quickly. The first one is in verse 15. I remember uh, Pastor Eric preached on this. We're, we're adopted into God's family. And as a result, <clears throat> we can call him Dear Daddy. That's what the phrase Abba, Father, it could be translated that way. Dear Daddy, this intimate personal relationship. Or how about verse 17? It says that we're co-heirs with Christ, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. And it's, if, it's almost as if Paul stops and in, in, in is saying, what are you going to say about that? How are you going to respond to that? What should we say to these things? A few weeks ago, we looked at the Holy Spirit in verse 23 and realized that the Holy Spirit guarantees our final redemption. He's that deposit, that down payment guaranteeing our final redemption. And then furthermore, the Holy Spirit in verse 26 uh, goes on and actually intercedes, prays on our behalf, even with groanings or words that we don't understand as He takes our request before the Father and lays them before the Father. Man. And then finally in verse 30 there, the term justification is a, it speaks of a legal transaction. We have been acquitted of all wrong. Those are just uh, five simple things that are found right there in this chapter alone. And essentially, what Paul is saying is, what are you going to say about that? What are you going to do with that? Because he just doesn't want to blab, 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 go on and on and on, kind of like Eugene Lang was with his graduation ceremony, uh, commencement uh, speech, but he wants to engage his audience, and so that's what Paul is doing here. So let's look specifically now at, at, uh, at verse 31. The back half of verse 31 is this second of two questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? In the original language in which Paul is writing, the, the language of Greek, it's a very uh, quick, almost staccato-like structure without a lot of verbiage. It's just basically, if God for us, who against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what I, I, I want us to realize here is that this isn't just... God the Father who is being spoken of here. In fact, in this passage, all three persons of the Trinity are actively engaged in being for us. Um, in verse uh, 
Verse 26, I've already just referenced the fact that the Holy Spirit is engaged in interceding for us on our behalf. In verse 34, coming up next week, we learn that not only is the Holy Spirit doing that, but so is Jesus himself. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. And as we're going to see here in verse 32, uh, God the Father goes to tremendous lengths in order to uh, be for us and to demonstrate the fact that He is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? I think it's helpful to note here that that English translation, if, doesn't speak of some sort of doubt or um, hypothetical situation. You know, if, if such, such and such could happen, then this could happen. No, literally, it's, it's written in such a way to indicate certainty. And a better translation of that word would be since, would be to say, since God is for us, who can be against us? That term uh, for us also is a term that references that he is um, acting on our behalf. So since God is acting on our behalf would be another way to translate this. Since God is acting on our behalf, who is against us? Who can be against us? This is not a guarantee of just smooth sailing. (laughs) This is not a guarantee that we won't have opposition in life. It's not a guarantee that everything is going to go smoothly at work. Suddenly you don't have any challenges with, with employees or employers. There's no opposition. All of your neighbors love you. No, this is, this is not a guarantee of that. But what it is a guarantee is this. It, it doesn't really matter. Whatever the opposition would be, it doesn't really matter because no one can prevail against us when God is for us. This truth is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's repeated uh, in places like Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah. We read as our uh, call to worship this morning uh, a passage that I want to reread to you in uh, Psalm 27. You can jot that down and you can look it up later. I don't have it on the screen and that's purposeful because I want you simply to hear these words again. This is David, King David, who's writing uh, an an amazing song of declaration that God is for him. Listen to what he says, Psalm 27, first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I love that psalm from David primarily because I can't help but think as David is writing that psalm, he's reflecting on many years earlier when he was just a little runt of a guy. And literally, the story of uh, when David encounters Goliath, The terminology that's used there could be translated runt. He's just a little lad. He's just a little boy. Sure enough, he was a shepherd boy, and he had already encountered some wild animals and wild beasts and whatnot. But he's he's just a little guy. And David steps out there in 1 Samuel 17, and he encounters this giant, Goliath, who was the champion for the Philistines. Do you remember what he said? This is amazing. Just a little kid. 
He looks at Goliath and says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. And, and yeah, Goliath did. He was standing there all decked out with all those weapons of warfare. Basically, just laughing his head off. Mm, pun intended. Um, and and just couldn't believe it. In fact, he calls David a dog. He says, you, you, you call a dog to come out here? David says, you come to me with those things, but... I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is a little treasure land student, one of our children's ministry students, okay? That's amazing. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Wow. We learn so much from the faith of that little lad, David. And then he says, The Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And that's exactly what happens. He pulls, pulls, out that, pulls out a rock, one of those five smooth stones, puts it in his sling, whips it around his head, and plants that thing right in the center of the forehead of Goliath, who comes tumbling down. And then David grabs his spear and lops off his head. And the Philistines run in fear, and they're routed that, that day by the armies of Israel. Because of the faith of a little guy who knew that God was for him. And he was standing there based on that reality that God is for me, God is for my people, and it doesn't matter who the opposition is. It's an, again, just an amazing example. It's one of the reasons why um, I, I, we sang... Martin Luther's great hymn just now, just a few minutes ago, Mighty Fortresses Our God, is because, I, again, I wanted us to focus on the truth of that. Stanza two, we sang it. Did we in our st- own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. Lord Sabaoth is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. God is for us. Now, we frequently turn to our own personal experiences, uh, the circumstances around us, and we wonder, is God really for me? Uh, Does God really love me? And when it comes to the truth of God's love, when it comes to the truth of God being for us, it's not our personal experiences that determine that. It's what the Scriptures say. What do the Scriptures say about that? That's the important thing. Not my attitude, not my opinion. It's what do the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures say this morning that God is for us. Personal experiences is never a proof of the love of God. The Word of God is that. However, having said that, as strongly as I can say it, um, part of our growth in spiritual maturity, Christian maturity, Christ-likeness, is that our experience of, experiences of God's faithfulness will begin to reflect the truth. They'll, they'll kind of start to catch up with the truth of God's Word. Why? Because we're trusting in them. We're trusting in Him, and we can look back on a series of circumstances or experiences in our life where God has come through in a very big way. And I think that's what David, David was doing when he's writing Psalm 27. He's reflecting on that, what happened when he was a young man. For those of you that are in a life group, especially for those of you that are leading a life group, I want to point out something to you on the talk sheet. 
There's a question on here. And, and by the way, if you're not in a life group yet, uh, pick up one of these anyways, and you can, you can go through it this week. You can also look ahead and see what Pastor Scott's going to preach on next week, which is Romans 8, 33 and 34. And you can read that in advance and be prepared by the time you come here to, to, to hear what God has to say about that. But the second question on the talk sheet says this, on a scale of 1 to 10, how certain are you that God is for you? That's a great question. And I think we're going to have some really good, solid discussion this week in our life groups. I think that scale, it can change at times. You may have walked in here this morning on a, uh, with a scale number of two, and I'm being generous. My desire is that as a, as a result of hearing the Word of God through the lyrics of our music, hearing the Word of God through the reading of Scripture, hearing the Word of God right now as I'm unpacking this, these two verses for us, is that when we walk out of here, we'll be nudged up that scale a little bit. And even further. You know, and this isn't just some sort of pastoral um, platitude that I'm trying to share with you. It sounds good. I've read it in a book somewhere. It makes sense. No. I'm speaking from personal experience. In fact, as, as early as this morning, early this morning, Deb and I were talking about this and reflecting on different sort of benchmarks in our Christian life. We've been, to, been together in marriage nearly 45 years. And, what, and during that time, uh, just the, the, the things that God has done, He's revealed Himself faithful. Let me just mention a couple of them to you. Uh, the loss of our firstborn baby. That was a real gut-wrencher, particularly because I just graduated from seminary. You know, I had just gotten an MDiv, and I was, I was ready for ministry, and God, I had done all these great things for you, and I'm ready to go, and you did what? I didn't feel like God was for me very much at that time. Yet God proved himself faithful through that. Oh, my gosh, in so many specific ways. And so that was a real benchmark of growth, benchmark of realizing that God is for us. Or how about the near death of our, at the time, 25-year-old son who had uh, acute renal failure and realized that he only had one to begin with kidney and it was the size of a, of a walnut when it should have been much larger and, and he was told, uh, you're about to die. Um, that's, that's, that's a real, that'll change your day. Um, that really kind of just came out of the blue. Yet, Again, God was faithful, and God has been faithful, and God has guided him and us, and now his, his wife and three sons through that whole process. What about an unexpected job loss? Can any of you relate to that? I know I can. I was, uh, working, had been working for a decade um, at my alma mater, Biola University, and all of a sudden they decided, and in fact, I got an award. I got a 10-year award, 10-year service award. And the woman who gave me the award, come to find out, she knew in the back of her mind that the next day I was going to be told, oh, by the way, your department is, is we're going to dissolve your department. And all of you get to go with that. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, so, but again, God was faithful. God walked us through that. God protected us through that. We, I could go on and on and on. And hopefully those three just kind of trigger life experiences uh, uh, that you've gone through as well. 
But again, our experiences don't determine whether God is for us or not. Scripture says that God is for us. But hopefully, as we apply that and understand that uh, through our experiences of growth, that, that makes more and more sense to us. Let's move on to, to verse 32. And look at the third uh, rhetorical question, which is at the back half of that verse. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In this verse, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser, from what's harder to what is simpler. Notice the first part of the verse. He didn't spare his own son. Instead, he gave him up for us all. That's the greater. That's the harder. God's already done that. And so anything else that comes our way is much easier for God. Does that make sense? I want us to notice, though, and we'll, I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into this, uh, into this section here. I want us to notice three specific actions that God takes on our behalf in this verse. The first one is, He did not spare, literally. He did not hold back. He did not abstain. He did not refrain from giving His own Son. In, in not sparing His own Son, God as judge of the universe, He's already pronounced a sentence in, in our favor. Um, th- that legal verdict of you, you're justified, you are declared righteous, that comes as a result of not sparing His own Son. And he's, God is basically saying, I'm pronouncing a sentence in favor of you my adopted children. So there's no reason to expect anything different from Him after this. If we really believe that God has done all of this for us, that He has saved us from our sin, that He's cleaned up our life, given us a whole new future, if we really believe that, then why do we wrestle with some of these other little piddly things, like the loss of a job? Because He's already demonstrated the extent of His love. A second action in this passage is that he gave him up uh, for us. Uh, New American Standard, the the version that I've got sitting up here on the podium, uses the term delivered him over. It's a strong term. And it's a strong term because it was used of uh, uh, how what you would do when you would deliver over, uh, like a prisoner, over to a group of soldiers for captivity. In fact, interesting, it's used in the Gospels multiple times to refer to what Judas did with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. God the Father gave him up, delivered him over. And then third, he's, as a result of that, can graciously give uh, the term here is the same term from which we translate the word spiritual gifts. It speaks of that which is, is gifted freely by God. It, in fact, it stresses the freeness, the openness of giving, the willingness to give. Ever try to extort a blessing from God? <laughs> 
How about appease? Ever try to appease God to gain His blessings? I think sometimes we even try to barter with God. God, if you'll get me out of this situation, then I'll do this, that, and the other thing. We're bartering with God. Those are counterfeit views, by the way, and um, they can actually limit God's generosity or our experience of His generosity. God wants to graciously give us all things. Now, this is not a proof text for the prosperity gospel. All right, so don't expect the the uh, ushers out there when you walk out and place your connection card in the plate. Don't expect Larry back there to drop a keys to a new Ferrari in your hand as you, as you walk out. Okay, that's, that's not what we're referring to. The the point is that God is going to graciously, freely give us everything we need to become all that we're designed to be, all that God has created us to be, all that He wants us to grow into to be. Let's, let's jump back up to uh, that, that phrase, gracious, uh, excuse me, he, he gave Him up. I, I want to I focus just for a minute on something that's in that text. I don't, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but I think it's, it's important enough to talk about here. What do we mean by that? What is the, the phrase, God gave him up or delivered him over? You know, we're coming off the heels of several weeks ago of Easter, of Passion Week in Easter. And I know when the last time Eric preached, he even asked this question. So, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? In Mark chapter 3, we're told that Judas handed him over or delivered him over. In Mark chapter 15, we're told that Pilate handed him over. In the second uh, sermon in the book of Acts, we're told that Herod and the Jews and Gentiles handed him over. You may have heard songs that talk about, it's my sin that nailed him to that tree, right? Jesus himself handed himself over. That's clear. That's clear in Isaiah chapter 53. That's clear in uh, a couple of Galatians and Ephesians, a couple of Paul's letters. That Jesus himself handed himself over. In today's passage, though, what we're discovering is it's God the Father who's handing over his son to death. Last week, Scott referenced in this next verse in Acts 2.23, he referenced the fact of... um, um, in the first Christian sermon delivered by Peter at Pentecost, he said this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But notice who's behind the action. It's, it's God the Father who's behind the action. Octavius Winslow, a 19th century uh, evangelical preacher, both in England and America, put it this way. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And in this great transaction, we lose sight of his betrayers and his accusers and his murderers. And we see only the Father travailing in the greatness of His love to His family. 
It can, it can be stated no better way than in Isaiah 53. And if you're not familiar with that passage, I'd encourage you to invest some time today and read through Isaiah 53. But you'll discover uh, these kind of statements in that chapter. Surely He, speaking of, of the Messiah, of Jesus, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. Hmm. Smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him and put Him to grief. This shows the extent of of the love of God to demonstrate that He is for us. He is for us and wants us to be in that kind of relationship and wants us to rely on that kind of truth. God is for us that He spared not His own Son, but gave Him up on our behalf. George Matheson was only 15 years old, when he was told that he was losing his eyesight. Instead of giving up, he pursued plans to enroll in the University of Glasgow. And through determination, he graduated four years later at age 19. He went on to continue in graduate studies in theology, in preparation for Christian ministry, and during that time is when he fully lost his sight. Well, his sisters joined ranks beside him, and they learned Greek and Hebrew, in order to assist him in his studies. I wish I would have had siblings who had done that for me. But his, his spirit uh, collapsed when his fiance, unwilling to be married to a blind man, broke off their engagement and returned his ring. He never married. Apparently the pain of that rejection uh, never totally left him. But years later, as a well-loved preacher in Scotland, he consoled himself by thinking of God's love, which is never limited, never conditional, never withdrawn, and never uncertain. And out of that experience and out of that understanding, he wrote the lyrics to the hymn, O love that will not let me go. Listen just to the first stanza. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. That's what God wants for us, from us. And as we walk out of here this morning, I'm trusting, I'm praying that we'll, we'll be nudging up that scale of, of how certain are we. I want us to be that much more certain this morning that God is for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we just take a a few seconds there of silence and as the room quieted back down and we have ringing in our ears that exclamation, God, that you are for us. Father, would would you take that truth and would you 
make it that much more real to all of us here this morning. Lord, I recognize that there, there are people most likely in this room who don't have a relationship with you. Father, please continue to, to draw uh, folks who are not yet in relationship with you. Continue to draw them to you. Continue um, to, to bring them closer and closer to that <clears throat> point of commitment where they, they too can say, God is for me. For those of us that have walked with you for maybe many, many years, even decades, Lord, would you take the truth of this morning's um, message that you are for us and would you change the way we think and change our attitudes about ourselves and about others? And as a result, would you be glorified? Would your name the name of Jesus, the name above all names, be lifted up and glorified. We ask this humbly. We ask this expectantly. We ask this in a powerful name, the name of Jesus. Amen.